Welcome to the Rockbrook Church Podcast. Our hope is that today's message brings you hope and clarity for your spiritual journey. We love hearing how God is working in your life. Feel free to share any stories of how this message gave you a new perspective and hope. Email us at church at rockbrook.org to tell your story. Thank you so much, worship team. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you. So grateful that you're here for week two of a four-week series called All Access, the story of you and God. So glad we get to go to church together. We have such genuine, wonderful people in our church. So grateful that we're together today. You know, you don't have to know very much to become a Christian. It's not like you have to be able to write a theological paper on becoming a Christian to become a Christian. Really, all you need is to say yes to Jesus Christ. That's what it comes down to. Friend, that is the power of God. In fact, the Bible gives us example after example of people who are saved just from a quick conversation, just from a touch, a word, even a look. Jesus said, even Jesus said, become like a little child when it comes to your faith. Come to me like a little child. It's simple. You don't have to understand a whole lot. You just have to know that you need Jesus Christ and to say, God, I'm in. And so never let your faith become so complicated that you can't boldly declare and believe John 3, 16, and that you can't keep it simple. But I will tell you that as you grow, you're going to discover that there is a backstory to your salvation. There is much more wrapped around you and I becoming Christians. And if you're like me, you're someone who believes but you want to know why. And you will have faith and believe in certain things, but you want questions answered to the point where it might even drive the people around you a little crazy because you want to know why things are the way that they are. And so if you're like me, if someone tells me Jesus Christ dying on the cross can mean that I'm saved, I believe that. But I want to know how does that work exactly? Uh, If you tell me I'm forgiven, I can believe that, but I want to know Why? How am I forgiven? If you tell me to have hope or faith, I want to have some reasons to have hope or faith, and that's what uh, we try to do in our teaching here, is give you reasons to have hope, reasons to believe, reasons to have faith, because the Bible gives those reasons. And that's what we're looking at in this series, is the back story to your salvation. And as we discovered last week in week one, that that back story includes a tent in the desert recorded in the Old Testament called the tabernacle. And it looked a lot like this, someone's recreation of it in the desert. Same thing here though. If you tell me to read my Bible and I go to read my Bible and I discover that there is chapter after chapter after chapter about this thing called the tabernacle, I wanna know why did God preserve that information for me? Why do I need to know that? And as I mentioned last week, the tabernacle was just this big object lesson, a spiritual truth wrapped in object lessons that the Israelites could see and understand and visualize after they had crossed the Red Sea and were in the desert and God wanted to dwell with them. In fact, to sum it all up, that's the summing up of last week. We looked at three chapters of this story And to sum it all up is God wants to tabernacle, which means dwell, with me. God wants to dwell with you. And we could have, 
Like, I could have just said that and we all gotten out early and got lunch early, right, and been done. Uh, but we looked at why does God want to do this? And we looked at how the Israelites ended up in Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, being led by Moses, building a tabernacle that's representing God's presence in the first place. And today we're going to look at, we're going to start going inside the tabernacle, and we're going to look at two objects in the tabernacle that have some rich truth behind them. So here's a digital representation, and if you were to search like a virtual tour of the tabernacle, you could find things like this. Uh, remember, it, it's lined with a, a white linen representing the holiness of God. There's one way to go in, it's through this gate, and when you walked in, you would go into this outer court area, and there may have been other tables and tools and different things in this outer court, but the first thing that you would see or the first thing that God said that you would approach would be the first thing in the tabernacle was this uh, altar that was seven and a half feet wide, seven and a half feet deep, four and a half feet high. And it was made of acacia wood, which was a very strong wood in the Middle East that grew in that part. And this wood altar was overlaid with bronze. And it had these staves coming out. of how, That's how they would transport the altar. So there was a fire constantly burning in this altar. In fact, the first day that the tabernacle was built, for the first sacrifice, fire came down from heaven and burned that sacrifice. And God said, okay, now don't let, ever let the fire go out. So they had to keep the fire going. And this is how they would transport it as they would um, move the tabernacle to different places as they traveled in the desert. If you're taking notes, I've got several notes for you today. Uh, the altar represented the claims of a holy and righteous God who must be satisfied before he can meet with man, mankind, and bless him. This altar represents the claims of a holy and righteous God. He's holy, and nothing can stand in the presence of a holy God. It's consuming. The Israelites had already seen that. It's too scary. I mean, God just shows uh, his back to Moses, and Moses can't even take it. Leviticus 11.44 says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. And today we underestimate God's holiness. Sometimes we, we even think, because we don't know anyone that's holy, we don't dwell on this thought, we even think, is God exaggerating this aspect of his character? Like why is he so, uh, why does this matter so much, his holiness? But for anything to be in the presence of a perfect, holy, set-apart God, it cannot stand. It would get consumed. And so any deviation from holiness must be punished by the person or a substitute. Something cannot make it in the holiness of God. How, so how does a holy and perfect God be in relationship. How is he going to dwell, tabernacle, with an unholy, imperfect, unrighteous people? And that's probably the nicest thing to say about us, right? I mean, it's not that we're just unrighteous. We're wicked. It's not just that we're unholy. Like, we have thoughts in our heart, in our mind, that we don't even want to share with other people because they can be so dark at times. How does God bridge the gap 
between his holiness and his intolerance of sin and what it does to us? How does he bridge that with his love for sinners and his love for mankind? And God said there could be reconciliation. There was a way to bridge that gap, but something doesn't make it. There has to be a sacrifice. And sacrifice is another one of those terms that, that I mean, we've kind of got to define and talk about because we use this so casually. Like, if I got up at 6 a.m. today to go and work out, I would say, oh, I'm really sacrificing for my body, right? Um, which, that's just an illustration. I don't know the last time I woke up at 6 a.m. to work out. But I would, if I did, I would say, this is quite a sacrifice. And so we bring up this word, say, oh, I'm making sacrifice. It was a sacrifice to be at church. It was a sacrifice to be with our family or whatever we might say. But the sacrifice we're talking about in this case is the surrender of something that is so valuable, something that costs you. That is a sacrifice. And God said that the ultimate sacrifice had to be pay, paid. What is an ultimate sacrifice? It's when a life is given for a life. We know that. We even say that. We honor people who give the ultimate sacrifice, people in the military, people, uh, police officers, firefighters, people who give the ultimate sacrifice, something that is so valuable. And God says when life is given for life, he said there has to be bloodshed. Why? Why did God require a blood sacrifice to be in his presence? What, why couldn't he have just said, I don't know, what would you have him say? Just, why, why, do, why didn't he say, uh, you just have to climb the highest mountain and uh, only a few of you will make it, but that's what you've got to do to be in my presence? Or what did he, why didn't he just say, if you follow these top 10 things and you just live a very moral life, a very value-added life, and you're a good person, just follow the law and you'll make it. No, God required a blood sacrifice because blood represents life. And this story is not about a quest or a journey or a life well lived, but he required a blood sacrifice because it's all about life or death. It's all about you make it in God's presence or you cannot make it in God's presence. You can't live Life doesn't, it gets consumed by the holiness of God unless there is life taken. Life could not stand in the holiness of God. In Leviticus 17, 11, it says, for the life of the body is in its blood. I've given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. When you have given your blood, you've given your all. And God in his mercy, God in his grace said, instead of an Israelite having to pay for his own sin with his own life, and then life being over, God allowed there to be a substitute, and God counted it as life for life. Now, there are a few types of sacrifices made in the tabernacle where I'm showing you, but in whole, to have God's presence with you to make right for sin, an Israelite would go to his flock, Pick a, a sheep from, couldn't be someone else's flock, had to be his own sheep, sheep from his flock, and that animal was going to die for his sins. So 
it seems like there's some pretty sober moments when an Israelite would bring a lamb to the tabernacle for sacrifice. I mean, it wasn't like it was their pet. It wasn't like they raised this sheep in the 4-H club or something like that. But yet, it was still to know, sobering to know that this innocent animal is getting ready to be killed because of my sin. And that's a sober thought to know that another living creature is going to pay the penalty because I fall short, that the penalty for sin is death and something's about to pay for that. So the Israelite would come in through that gate that we just saw, leading his sheep, a perfect sheep that didn't have blemish or spot, and he would bring it to the priest and he would put his hand on that sheep's head signifying that I brought my sheep and I'm transferring what I have done wrong. And then that animal would be killed as it laid on the altar tied to those horns that we saw sticking out from the altar and it would be burned. And the Israelite had faith that God did indeed count it as an acceptable sacrifice. He, he could know that there had been an exchange and that God was pleased. God said when the smoke uh, risen from that altar that it was a pleasing aroma to him and that the, the payment was satisfied. Everything that happened in the tabernacle happened because of the blood. In other words, the blood had to come first. And that was the system of sacrifice that the Israelites used for thousands of years. But when the time was right, God unfolded the next plan of salvation and it was to send Jesus Christ. He sent Jesus to earth to be the ultimate sacrifice. If you're taking notes, Jesus was the Lamb of God. That's why when you get to the Gospels, you're going to read this profound moment of one day Jesus is walking up to or walking by John the Baptist where John the Baptist is ministering. And it says the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus is the Lamb of God who took my judgment in my place. And he played multiple roles in this salvation drama that God is unfolding here. In fact, I put in your notes, Jesus was the fulfillment of all of this. He was the sacrificer. He was the sacrifice. He was the priest. He was the high priest. So Jesus, in effect, was the Israelite who brought the sacrifice. And who was the sacrifice himself? He says, no one can take my life from me. I, I lay it down. And so the sacrifice he brought was himself, and he acted in the role of priest in offering the sacrifice, and he, offered, and he acted in the role of high priest in presenting the blood of God. Jesus did fulfill all, everything to do with the sacrificial system. And he played all four roles in God's redemption process. In fact, in 1 Peter 2.24, would you read this one out loud with me? He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Again, we see this time and time and time again in Scripture that this is about life and death. This is about dying to sin, living for righteousness. This is not just about a moral code or being a good person. There is life on the line. And Jesus was whipped and crushed and beaten in our place so that we could be healed and whole. And acceptance 
of Jesus as my substitute makes me acceptable to God. When I accept Jesus as my lamb, my personal lamb, it's as if I've put my hand on his head and said, I confess that all that was broken and wrong in me, Jesus took it from me. And he is my lamb who died for my sin. And God said that when I accept that, when I believe that, when I receive that, that I am acceptable to God. I want you to know why we call Jesus the Lamb of God. That It was so profound that we sing He is the Lamb of God. That we say in Scripture He is the Lamb of God. Because of the transfer that's happening. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God caused Christ, who Himself knew nothing of sin, actually to be sin for our sakes, so that in Christ we might be made good with the goodness of God. Where I am not good... God says, I have been made good with the goodness of God. Acts 13, 38 says, Brothers, listen. In this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness for your sins. Everyone who trusts in him is freed from all guilt and declared righteous. Something the Jewish law could never do. So, God gave the law, and he told them that there had to be these sacrifices, and he told them how many there were to be. And from that time that, that, that the sacrificial system started until the time that Jesus came, there were millions of sacrifices, but they weren't enough to wipe out sin. It took the ultimate lamb with his once and for all sacrifice to wipe out sin forever. And because of that, because of what Jesus done, friend, you don't have to wonder, uh, did I say the right thing when I got saved? Did I pray the right prayer? Did I get baptized at just the right time? Did I follow the right ritual? Did I stand at the right moment? Did I sit at the right moment? Did I do the right things? Because it's not about what you have done. It's about what Christ has done. And I realize that some of you may not feel this. You may not feel you're forgiven of sin, that you're declared righteous. Your guilt is not all gone. And you might say, I have trashed a lot of parts of my life and I don't know that the wrath of God is fully satisfied. But the Israelite knew when, the, when he'd taken that lamb to that bronze altar and a sacrifice was given, that God's wrath was satisfied. And same thing for you, Jesus on the cross, God's wrath fell on him. And this verse is true for you. In Jesus, there is forgiveness of sins. Some of you are on the other spectrum. You might say, you might sit here today and say, well, uh, you know, my neighbors, my family, everybody thinks I'm a pretty nice guy, pretty nice gal. And I haven't, I mean, I haven't trashed my life. And, I mean, isn't this good enough? I'm a pretty moral person. But that doesn't mean that you're declared righteous. That doesn't mean you can stand before a holy God. That doesn't mean that your spirit is alive. And you need Jesus Christ. And the truth to believe about this chapter is that Jesus, as the perfect sacrifice, through him, God accepts me. God accepts me. And maybe you need to feel that and believe that and lean into that in a new way as we go through this series in this time. That you can be, the miracle is not that I accept Jesus. I've got to do that, accept Jesus. 
But friend, the miracle of salvation is that God accepts me. And once you left that bronze altar and came to that place, the very first thing that you would walk to was this very large wash bin. It's called the bronze laver. And God doesn't tell us how big it is. That's why you'll see many different depictions of it. But the priests were the only ones who were allowed to use this wash bin. So this wasn't a place for the encampment to go and wash their clothes or whatever. It was only for the priests' use. And if you and I had been designing the tabernacle, lining out the tabernacle, we would have mistakenly put this one first. Because we would have said, well, I've got to clean up my life, and I've got to, I've got to clean up what I've messed up before I can come to God and make a sacrifice. And God says, no, 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 no. That's the human way of doing it. Human effort wants to get cleaned up first. He says, but I'm telling you, you come by the blood. And once the blood is applied to your life, then you can be clean. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that's what cleanses you. And God knew what he was doing. Now, when a priest was inaugurated into the priesthood and he was come to the labor and the priesthood, he'd give a sacrifice, but then was given a complete bath to represent this is the beginning of something new in your life. But thereafter, he still needed cleansing, but he only needed daily cleansing. Why does God, so he doesn't put it first, but he still demands this cleansing. Why did God make it such a big deal to have one piece in this big object lesson of the tabernacle for cleansing. Part of it's just the practical thing. I mean, you can see that, I mean, they're in the desert on sand doing sacrifices. I mean, it's dirty. There's got to be a place to wash and clean up, and they would also clean some of the sacrifices. But on a spiritual level, it was a representative of a spiritual cleansing that the priests needed. I need to be, I need to be cleansed. So you might say, what, Rylan, why are you telling me this? How does this apply to me today? How does this laver with water in it have something to teach me today about salvation, about my walk with God, about my faith? Well, I'll tell you. For starters, through Christ, you are now a priest. And we have a high priest. And that's a pretty radical thought, especially if you were raised in another spiritual tradition. I mean, to think of the word priest in my name, you might say this just doesn't add up. But it started with the Israelites coming in with the sacrifice, but from there God says, you are now priests, and you are qualified. Peter says this to the church in 1 Peter 2.5. He says, you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. So that's why in Christianity, but this is different than most religions, you don't have to make a pilgrimage to some specific place to be a true believer. There is no temple that you've got to go visit. We are, the church are the living stones. We are the stone. We are the temple together. What's more, you are his holy priests, you and me. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. For you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. So the priests in in the Old Testament, 
All their work had to do with the tabernacle. They weren't shepherds, farmers, shopkeepers. They just had this one role in the tabernacle. So if, if, <laughs> if you and I are priests now, that doesn't mean that you stop being an accountant or a school teacher or a real estate agent. It just means as you live life, God sees you as a priest. And what did the priests do? We saw last week, they're the representatives for the people. They represent God to the people. They represent people to God. And that's what God wants for his church, for us today, in our daily life, to be priests. That as we go through our life, your job may be accountant, school teacher, real estate agent, but your real job, how God sees you, is to be an introduction, to use that to be an introduction to people about the God who loves them, to bring him to them, to bring them to him. As a result, you show others the goodness of God. That's our role as believers. That's our role as priests. We look at how Jesus took on those roles in the sacrifice, but it says we have a a high priest. So there was one high priest, the tabernacle, it was Aaron, but who's the high priest now? If we're the priest, who's the high priest? Let's look at that a little bit here in Hebrews 8. And if you're doing the 21-day Bible reading plan with us, you'll read this this week. And I love it when the Bible does this. Anytime I get in my Bible and it says, here is the main point. I'm like, thank goodness. Like, I circle that right there. Here is the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. This is Jesus. He ascended and sat down on the throne, and there he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. The point of the idea of Jesus being our high high priest is we don't need anybody else to go in on our behalf. You no longer need an intermediary. Jesus Christ is the high priest. You are a priest. So when you want to talk to God, you just talk to God through Jesus Christ. When you want to confess, you just confess to God through Jesus Christ. When you want wisdom and direction, you just go to God through Jesus Christ. It means you have all access. Friend, you don't need anybody else to be a representative for you. I'm not your priest. None of the pastors here are your priests. We're priests, but we're all, because we're all the priesthood of all believers. We all are. And there is no human being who is the high priest. Jesus Christ is the high priest. And friend, no one has a better in with God than you do. We all have the same access, all access to God through Jesus Christ, our high priest. So will you consider this idea of being a priest as you go through your daily life? I think one of the things to consider with that and to consider from this labor as it applies to us today is well, what does it mean for me to be a priest? Well, it means that just like the priest needed only a once-for-all bath, well, so do I. Like, I need to, this is salvation. Scripture says that when we're saved, we're purified, that we're born again, that we're considered holy and righteous, again, because of the sacrifice, because of Jesus Christ. That's what happens at salvation. We're washed clean. 
but then have you noticed that you and I still sin? Like we still get dirty and we get contaminated. Like you're going to leave here today and you're going to see things and experience things and live life with people that it's going to contaminate you and the world around you. And you're going to think things and do things and say things that's going to contaminate you and the world around you. What do we do? What is a priest, what is a Christian supposed to do with their sin? How do we find cleansing? Where do we find that? We find that daily cleansing for my life in the word of God. Because the water and the laver represented cleansing Bronze represented judgment, and so does the Word of God. It cleanses, it judges. Friend, this is one reason we don't like to read it, because we know if we read it, our sins are going to be pointed out, that we're going to have to wrestle with things that we weren't wrestling with, think about things that we weren't thinking about, and we're going to see what we're doing wrong, and it makes us uncomfortable, and so we just as soon avoid it. But the word of God is given as a cleanser. It was given to judge because once we see our sin and our response is supposed to be repentance. It's supposed to be cleansing by the word. John 17, 17, Jesus said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So what does a Christian do with sin? What happens when a Christian sins? I mean, we're believers, but we fail. We mess up. How does God treat us? How should we respond? Let me show you this as we close in 1 John 1, 9. Would you read this verse out loud with me, please? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God says, here's your part. You confess, he says, I will cleanse. You confess, I'll purify. So what does it mean to confess? This, this word, the original word that would have been written here that John would have written down is the word homo legeo, homo legeo. And it literally means to say the same thing, to say the same thing. So it means I agree. It's a confession to say I speak the same thing about my sin that God does. It means I agree with his word. God, you got it right and I am wrong, and I'm calling it for what it is, and I'm turning from my logic and my excuses and my culture and the world's way, and I'm saying, you are right about this. It doesn't mean you bargain with God and say, well, I'll never do it again. It doesn't mean you bribe God, like, oh, I promise to read my Bible every day if you forgive me. No, no, no. You admit, you confess, you repent. You say the same thing about your life, about your sin, that God says. Now you might ask, because I get this question often, you're telling me all I've got to do is confess my sin and God will forgive me? And my answer to that every time is, I'm not telling you that. (laughs) God is telling you that. I didn't make that up. God said it. I didn't write it. God wrote it, and he says, he promises that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, that you can look to God, and grace is the face that he looks at you with, 
And as we understand that we've sinned, as we've messed up, as we need that daily cleansing, as we are corrected and guided by God instead of, from, of running from Him, instead of turning from Him, instead of building up a barrier, instead of avoiding Him, instead of avoiding Christ, instead of avoiding the church, we come running back to Him as we see He has a face toward us turned with grace. And that connection is reestablished and the joy comes again of our salvation because we know that we are forgiven and that we're not His bother, we're not His burden, that He is ready, willing. Jesus already died on the cross for you he wants it to count for you his word is written he wants it spoken over your life and some of you have needed to be reminded for a long time maybe you've been a Christian you've come to Jesus Christ you believe in him but you're not feeling experiencing the relief of your sin and you struggle to feel something in your life and in your walk with God you struggle to feel his acceptance and forgiveness And it may very well be that you don't understand the significance of Jesus' sacrifice and how it can count for you and that his face is turned towards you with grace. And you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be ashamed. You don't need to be embarrassed. You just humble yourself and say, God, I don't understand it all, but your word is right. And I know enough to know that you are right. And you don't need to be afraid, you don't need to be ashamed, you don't need to be embarrassed, you don't need to worry. You can know that you are forgiven of sin and that you are purified from all unrighteousness and you can stand before a holy God and be with him. The truth to believe about the laver is that God cleanses and forgives me. Would you pray with me please? Heavenly Father, uh, so much of this doesn't fit our experience with other people. It just seems impossible that you're so full of grace and truth. But we accept today that what you want to give is forgiveness and mercy. That you have made a way where we could make no way. And God, long ago, you began making a way. We see through this tabernacle and through that system that you gave them a substitute And there was a way that they could reconnect with you to have fellowship. But a life was given. And Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are the ultimate lamb. Thank you that your sacrifice forever got rid of any need for sacrifices to be offered. That God, it is now a living sacrifice that we just live for you wholeheartedly, wholly devoted. And church, would you just turn to God now in your heart and mind and say, Jesus, thank you for being my lamb. Thank you for dying in my place, for being my substitute. And God, today, I just symbolically put my hand on your head and say, thank you. Thank you for taking my sin. Thank you for going to the cross for me. Thank you that I can be accepted into your kingdom. God, I look to your word today and I pray that you would cleanse me, forgive me, search my heart, show me where I need to say the same thing as you, where I need to confess. We thank you that we can rely on your promise of forgiveness. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love for you to get connected to what's going on at Rockbrook Church. 
visit us online at rockbrook.org for service times, small group information, and other ways you can discover your purpose here on earth.